This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews and the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com, code VILLAGE, for 20% off your order. You're listening to Voices of Your Village. This is episode number 93. I got to hang out with Mama Nicole as she dove into all of her questions about navigating parenthood with anxiety. If you're unfamiliar with the Q&A series, we opened up a special series with our Thursday email club. Folks, if you are not getting our Thursday emails and you would like to, head on over to seedandsow.org slash join our village and you can sign up to get hot tips in your inbox every Thursday as well as things like access to the Q&A series where you get to join me in a podcast episode to ask your biggest parenting questions. All right, let's dive into this bad boy. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everybody, welcome to Voices of Your Village. This is another episode in our series where our guests get to reach out and let us know if there's something they want to chat about. And I'm super stoked for this episode because it is one of the most common topics that I hear or questions that I'm hearing about. So I'm excited to welcome Nicole today. Hey, Nicole. Hi, hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm super excited. I'm ready. Dive in. (laughs) Great. That's awesome. More so than I was this morning. (laughs) My calendar for next week, but I'm now pumped to dive into this with you too. Nicole, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and kind of what brings you here? Yeah. So I am a mother to my son, Judah. He's going to be two in about few weeks, almost two. I'm married to my husband, Michael. We've been married for four and a half years, but together for about 11 years. Uh, high school sweetheart, yeah. 
Um, and I'm currently a stay-at-home mom. I did work um, before my son was born. I was actually in the process of getting my master's degree in social work when I had my son and was severely underprepared for the challenges of motherhood and just couldn't hack keeping, you know, going with that. So I took a pause to focus on, you know, this season of my life right now. And we're just like, you know, living the dream. <laughs> just, just, you know, the daily ins and outs of life, pretty much. <laughs> well, no shame in that game, man. Raising these tiny humans is insanely hard. And doing that whilst in a master's program is oh, man. wild. Awesome. Well, at some day, if you decide to go back and finish that master's, I think the social work world would be lucky to have you, sis. Thank you. Um, yeah, for sure. So what brings you here today? So I wanted to talk with you because you're so amazing about um, my own personal issue with anxiety, specifically in the realm of kind of recognizing that crying from a baby or a toddler, triggering my own anxiety being a problem. Because I think for myself, I just got in this mindset of like, oh my gosh, my kid is crying. I need to make it stop. I need to make it stop. When not, I mean, I've come to understand it a lot more now, but understanding that crying is not bad. I mean, we want to solve the problem, but it's, you know, just kind of navigating my own anxiety over the crying and how to like deal with it and respond to it. And then also kind of dealing with the times when I've really messed it up. And now I have to kind of walk back like a a whole situation. <laughs> totally, totally. Hearing a child cry is remarkably hard. He, watching anyone that you love feel something hard sucks. And that is going to be true as we navigate that, as we navigate this conversation, like that is still a fact, right? So I want to hold space for that as a reality. Yeah. Like, you're not going to get to a place where you're like, oh, it just doesn't bother me at all to hear them cry. Mm -hmm. It's getting to a place where we can recognize those feelings and regulate our own emotions so that we can respond with intention instead of reacting, right? Like, that's the overall Absolutely. goal. Yeah. Um, but my goal isn't that you'll hear your kid cry and not care. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> just so that we we clear that, that like, it it doesn't, I don't think, get easier to see someone you love experience something hard. Mm. And it's extremely natural to want to just make it go away, to just solve that problem. And I think from such a young, literally from like fresh out the womb, we are like, ooh, they're crying. Like, what do they need? Mm-hmm in this desire to make it stop. And I think a lot of the times we put this specifically on women, especially in hetero relationships, mm -hmm. um, where we'll be like, oh, they want their mom. Maybe they're hungry, especially breastfeeding women. We do this too. We're like, <laughs> so, and, and what we're saying is like solve that problem. And then if you, if you take that baby and they're not hungry, then all this pressure to make them stop crying is on you. Yep, absolutely. And it's also like, well, you're their mom. Like, you should just know. There's this, oh, like, you'll just know what they need. I did not know what he needed. I was like, I have, I have no idea. I, I just, like, 
I, okay, I'm, I was, I was an Amsel, you know, breastfeeding him. And at the time, especially when they're so little, they can't tell you now. He tells me mommy snack. I'm like, cool, let's get a snack. But when he's a month old and he's just crying and I'm like, okay, he doesn't want to be fed. Okay. He doesn't want this. Like, I'm just trying everything. It's like, was so overwhelming. Just like the, like the smack of reality of just like, I don't know what to do. And I, I, I need you to just tell me, just tell me what you want. <laughs> totally. And I think you are the norm here, right? Like I think everybody has been in a situation at least once where they're like, this kid's still crying and I don't know what they need. Like, I don't know how to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And I think here when we're looking at this, well, we can talk about it in infancy and then as they get older, because mm-hmm. sometimes we do know what they need or want and we're still going to let them cry. So, and, and that's kind of a different beast. But for instance, I, Rachel, our sleep consultant, when Abel was three weeks old, I went and met him for the first time and she was like, Liz, he won't stop crying. It's nonstop. I can't figure it out. And she's like, and she had the um, like guilt or shame of like, I work in this field, right? Like she's a seed and so employee. And she's like, I, in her head was like, I should know this, right? right? And I, we get this a lot, I think in, in early childhood, especially when I'm like talking to early childhood educators who then uh, choose to become parents. And it's this like, man, I've done this with other kids or I support other families, et cetera. I should know this. And uh, you, it's so hard when you're in it to see the bigger picture. And I think one huge, huge tool is tapping into your village. Like somebody asked me recently, I said something about somebody being a really good mom. And they were like, what does that mean to you? Like what makes somebody a good mom? And I was like, Ooh, that's a great challenge yeah. for me to like really think about. And as I thought about it, I was like, you know what, what I meant by that was she doesn't think that she has to have all the answers. Yeah. She's willing to like reach out and ask for help. And, and this mom does like, she, she'll try things and she'll put things in action and then she'll reach out and be like, Liz, I don't know what to do here. This is where I'm getting stuck. Can you help me through this without feeling that she has to have all the answers? And I think that that's a huge part of this is that if you go into parenthood thinking you're supposed to know all the answers, you're going to feel really overwhelmed. Yeah. And inadequate. You're just immediately going to feel so like everyone told me it would just not be easy, but like, oh, you'll figure it out. You'll get there. And I mean, yeah, you do, but not in the way that it's presented. It's presented like, you'll just know, you'll have that Mm -hmm. moment of like, oh, this is their hungry cry. This is their this cry. And you're like, I there's, it's just crying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, Well, I think this is like huge to talk about because I think this is where a lot of, we know that anxiety is higher in parenthood and in kids than ever before. And I think a lot of it is coming from this place of like telling people over and over that they will just get it and they will figure it out. It's like, no, we can instead tell them it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to reach out and say, I don't have this, (laughs) right? Like, I don't know what's happening. So when I showed up to Rach at three weeks old, or to when Abel was three weeks old and she, she was just like, listen, I, this isn't working. Like I can't figure this out. And we had been texting and chatting on the phone up until that point. But then I could come in with fresh eyes, not sleep deprived and kind of take a look at this kiddo and figure out like, what might he be asking for and give her a little bit of like an outside perspective. And then we stayed in touch. Like 
I went back and visited again. We stayed in touch and, and continued to troubleshoot it. But I think the idea that you have to do this alone is really hindering mamas everywhere and, and parents in general is a huge part of this. So first and foremost, like tapping into your village and knowing you don't have to do this alone. I get so often people are like, you're going to be a great mom. And I'm like, gosh, that pressure is huge. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and I, I hope that I am a awesome mom. And also if I am, it'll be because I have a village surrounding me that I trust to tap into that I can turn to and say, Hey guys, I know I've said this to you a million times and now I can't remember any of it because I'm exhausted. Please help me. Yeah. I need that little <laughs> reminder. <laughs> yeah. Zach at one point was like, this podcast is great because you've recorded yourself saying these things. <laughs> so so much. true. It's like, let me just file back. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Uh-huh. Totally. But I think a huge part of this is being able to say like, I don't have the answers and I need help. Yeah. It's actually like our mama's getaway weekend that's coming up. It's one of my favorite things about it is that everyone who's there showing up saying, I don't have all these answers and I need help. And everybody is coming in with that perspective and we get to just dive in and it's so delicious. But I think that that's step one. I think step two here, now when we're looking at just like the cries in general, triggering your anxiety, I want to look first at like, what's your fear? What's your actual fear? So if you can pause and say, I'm really afraid of X, what would that be for you? I think that when I think about this topic, I'm, I'm more so think about when he was younger. So like, I think about when I was in that mindset, when he was, you know, like under a year old and not really able to communicate as much, it definitely more so was related to like the sleep stuff. Like when he's crying and like kind of that myth that like, I don't want to say that myth that you should never let your baby cry, but there's kind of this pervasive idea in like the mothering world that I've seen where it's like, there's so much emphasis on like, you know, don't let your kid cry. Don't let your kid cry. That started, I think from a good place of like responding, but then it just turns into like, don't ever let them cry. And if you let them cry, you're going to somehow damage them. Like my fear, I think stem from like somehow causing some kind of emotional damage because I didn't respond like fast enough or quick enough or, you know, whatever that might be. Mostly like during the day, I think I was more calm and more like able to figure out like, okay, what are we doing here? But I think it's that fear, like more so when you're kind of tired and you're not, you don't you can't just be like, oh, let's go outside. You'll feel like we'll be a little happier, but you're in bed. So you have to figure out, okay, what do I do here? Like, immediate that immediate response time like I think I feared that like if I didn't respond the right way that I would somehow like emotionally like scar him or that I was a bad mom because he cried or like everything just it's kind of I guess it's kind of selfish but it's like everything about him was like a reflection on me and my ability to like be like a good mom for him basically Yeah, I don't think that's selfish. I think it's really normal. They are an extension of you and your job is to make sure they're safe and healthy and growing. And we say that over and over and over till we're blue in the face forever that like, that's your job as a parent. And so then they're crying and you're like, I don't know what they need. Am I doing my job or am I good enough at my job? Mm -hmm. And uh, I've had moms who've reached out and been like, 
this kid needs another mom. Like, I'm not good enough at this. I don't know what they need. And what I would love for everyone to know is that like, you are the best mom for your kid. You do know them better than anybody else. Right now I'm working on something really exciting at Seed and working to like bridge childcare supporters with teacher, uh, with parents in, in a, in a new and different way. And I was just writing this yesterday, like kind of like a letter to teachers about how like in the classroom, we'll often like then pass our kids on to the next room and, will be, it's, it's hard for teachers. We'll be like, okay, this is how they like to go down for a nap. This is the food they like, whatever. And I was like, take that times a million. That's what a parent's walking through, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, every scrape and bump and bruise and weight check and all that jazz. Uh, You are the best parent for your child and they will cry, Mm -hmm. right? Like both of those things are true. So When I think especially you touch on a few things here. One thing that reminded me of like attachment parenting, and I'm not here to just like knock attachment parenting. However, I think there are some things that are damaging from attachment parenting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And largely it's this message that you're conveying here of like, I'm supposed to respond to every cry immediately. And essentially sending the message that like, it's not okay to cry. And that's the opposite of the message I want to send kids actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's like exactly what it is. Exactly. And yeah. yeah. And so I, I want them to know like, it is okay to feel sad or to feel hungry and I'm getting my boob ready for you, or I'm getting a bottle ready for you. I yeah. can't do this any faster. I can't get it out any faster. Right. Or you've got to do some work here, right? Like mm-hmm. kiddos who are like, oh, I'm so hungry, but I'm so hungry. I don't want to suck. And mm-hmm. well, you got to do a little work here to get the mm-hmm. good. And so I think like, I want to pay attention to and I want parents to pay attention to like what they're consuming and the messages they're consuming. I, there's not like one type of parenting that I subscribe to in any way, but there are things I think we can pull from all different avenues. Absolutely. And also I think there are some negatives to all different avenues. There's a reason we don't have like one approach at Seed. It's really about like figuring out what works for your family unit and building your own self-awareness around like, how do I feel with this? How do I feel after I consume some attachment parenting stuff? Or how do I feel after I read duct tape parenting or whatever? There are so many different things out there at this point. Um, How do I feel about that? Mm -hmm. What are my actual feelings? And then when I'm putting it into action, how do I feel about it? Does it make me feel anxious? Does it make me feel stressed? Does it not sit in my stomach well? Or do I feel like this makes sense and in alliance with my value system? Just building that awareness first around that. And so when, when we're looking at like that newborn phase, especially, I think taking into consideration that like, it really is okay if kids cry. And that's not the same as like, cry it out. (laughs) Right. That was my thing is like, I was so not for that. Like, I didn't even need to read any book to know that like, that was just not going to be for me. Like it was so, just so not where I felt like comfortable, you know? So I think it start it started with that where like cry it out, you know, for me was like that. Okay. That's definitely not going to like work for me for sure. But then it just kind of like, I think through my own anxieties and then through this desire to want to do it right. I want to do it 
what's the right way? And it's very frustrating that there's no, here's the, <laughs> here's the list, here you go, do it the right way. So I think through that, like evolving over time, like in those first few months, especially, it just kind of turned into this, like, you must immediately respond. So I feel like, especially again, like when it relates to sleep, cause I just, I see where it, it had the most, I think, I don't want to say damage, but just like the most effect in that area for me is he never, I never gave him the opportunity to like even have a moment to stir and maybe figure it out because I was so scared that I'm letting him cry it out. Oh my gosh, I'm letting him cry. I, like, I can't do this. That it just kind of became this, like, I can't even let him wake up on his own hardly because I was so like right there and just like scared that I was going to like, I don't know, harm him, I guess, I, which just sounds silly to think about now, but in the moment it makes sense. Totally. And really what you were doing is being reactive instead of responsive. Right. Yep. And I think it's so common, especially around sleep. I mean, you're exhausted and there's also a part of you that's like, I don't want this kid to wake up and end up in like a giant tantrum if I can avoid it because it's 2 a.m. and I don't want to be awake at 2 a.m. Yeah, it was easier like negotiating this whole thing and having this whole hour long process and maybe he'll go back to sleep or just sticking a boob in his mouth and he definitely goes back to sleep. <laughs> what gets me more sleep? Totally, totally. And like, to be honest, we don't, we're, we're currently, Rachel's working on it right now, uh, creating a newborn sleep guide that can outline for parents like what to actually expect, what to work on, what to not work on yet. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's another big thing that we get. Like, Am I creating bad habits? Man, no, we can undo yeah. anything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. And there are some foundations you can lay early. Uh, but for the first month, we say like, don't do anything. Do yeah. nothing but like connect with your kid, get to know them, fig- build milk supply, all that jazz. But I think around sleep, especially, we're like, am I doing the right thing here? Because there's so much fear-based information out there around this, both around things like SIDS and also around crying and like, oh my gosh, is my kid alive? Are they safe? And am I doing irreparable emotional damage? Yeah. <laughs> like the three big questions we get around sleep. And, and there's just so much fear-based info out there. But um, when we're looking at like irreparable emotional damage, we're looking at serious trauma, right? Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I actually have been thinking about this a lot lately, the word like traumatic, I think we use too frequently where we're like, oh, this was like a traumatic experience for them. Or like going to school for the first time, like that's not a traumatic experience. They may have had hard feelings and they yeah. had to learn to navigate them. It wasn't trauma. Yeah. Um, and t- trauma is very different. Like trauma-informed care is very different. And I yes. think we often put these on the same pedestal. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's also really unfair for us to put that on someone to say, oh, they had a traumatic experience versus like, if they did, they'll let you know, like you'll, you'll know, you don't need to pronounce it first. Cause that's kind of putting on you know, like it's kind of projecting basically. Maybe it was traumatic for you for them to go. (laughs) Totally. And they may have felt hard feelings, like getting, feeling scared about something or getting upset or feeling sad about something is not the same as trauma. And so first I want to like let parents off the hook that like, it's not, it's not easy to create traumatic experience for kids. 
Will they feel hard feelings? Sure. They might feel scared the first time they're alone in a room by themselves. They also might not. They might feel disappointed that it's taking so long to get milk from your breast. And that's okay too, right? Like they can feel hard feelings and that's okay. And that's like the overall message that I want both parents and really kids to hear is that like, it's okay if this is a little hard for you right now. I can handle that. But what we've got to do societally is make this shift in saying to parents, it's okay if your kid feels hard things. You're not doing irreparable emotional damage by yeah. them crying for 10 minutes while you take a shower or doing yeah. something for yourself. Like that's okay. Yeah. In fact, if it's going to mean that you show up as a calmer parent, or if it means that you have filled your cup a little bit, even if they cried for a little bit, that's okay. My goal is not that kids aren't crying. My goal is that kids know this is a safe space to express my emotions and this person will help me navigate it and figure it out. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't mean we're going to help them navigate it and figure it out in 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. I think that you really nailed it on the head when you said like, it's about us communicating that like, whatever my child is going through, like I want them to know that me, mom, I can handle it. I can handle this. Your emotion is not too big for me. And I am definitely better about that now. I mean, almost two years, like postpartum, I'm way better. Like I have way more like emotional intelligence for him in that way. But I think that so much of like those early, like, like I said, kind of like under a year was like more so about me dealing with my own trauma that I went through as a child that caused a lot of my own anxieties and mm -hmm. my, my projection of that, that like, oh, if, if they can't handle this, like they're gonna have anxiety for the rest of their life. And I don't want them to be like me because of what I went through and like all, you know, all that stuff. And I'm like, well, looking back, I'm like, it probably wasn't like that. <laughs> it probably was just my, that was how I felt because that was my experience, right. but trying to not put my own trauma that I experienced on my kids, basically kid. I yeah. should say. Yeah, no, a thousand percent. And I think this is super common, especially for those of us who have experienced trauma and, and also even if you've experienced trauma, you don't have to live with anxiety for life. And like that, that learning that for myself as a rape survivor, like that was really powerful. Probably the most powerful thing in my life was learning that I didn't, ha it wasn't like, oh, because this happened, now I live with anxiety forever. Mm -hmm. I remember like my first therapist who was like, you can experience fear and not live with anxiety. And I was like, excuse me, what? Like I had prescribed myself to a life of like, well, now I have anxiety because this happened. Yeah. And I think this opened so many doors also for parents to know we can we can work with kiddos on a lot of things, kind of no matter what you do here, right? Mm -hmm. Like today I'm recording an episode on spanking. And we're gonna be talking about the fact that like, even if you've spanked your kid before, we can still support them with other tools. We can still teach them that hitting somebody when you're mad isn't okay, right? It's not like, mm -hmm. oh, I did this thing and so it's all downhill from here. I think of it kind of a like, same with so many things that were like, well, I didn't do this perfectly, so I'm done. Like, oh, 
I didn't exercise today. So like, I'm just gonna, there's no way I'm getting back into shape now. (laughs) Do it again tomorrow. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, I didn't meditate or I didn't do my gratitude practice today. Like I am so bad at keeping up with routines, et cetera. Like we tell ourselves these things all the time. And so then we are just like, well, this is off now and I, I, I'm not doing this well enough. So I'm just not going to do it. And I think similarly with parenting, like you're going to screw up all the time. Right. And like one thing I recently was like living with a family for a week and at the end of the night, we put the kids to bed and we'd sit down and we'd debrief. We'd look back at the day and be like, all right, where did the wheels come off the bus? Where did we see giant tantrums that were out of the ordinary? Or where did we lose our cool? Where? And looking back without judgment to just say like, all right, where did this happen? And then what could we tweak for next time so that maybe that doesn't happen in the same way? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a huge part of parenting for the rest of your life is that every single day you're going to leave and there are going to be places in the day where you weren't perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a thousand percent. Okay. You're normal. You're a human, right? Like that's yeah. going to happen to everybody. But I think the powerful part is being able to sit with that and say like, all right, man, I lost my cool today at nine o'clock. That's been happening the last couple of days. What's going on? Do I need to like eat some food before then? Do I need to sit down and drink my coffee? Like, are we moving too fast in the morning? Being able to just yeah. look back and say, where am I losing my cool? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and to reflect back on that. But I think that, I feel like I went off on a little tangent here on you, but, <laughs> but I think a huge part of the like anxiety around being this perfect parent is that it, first of all, it's like an unattainable goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you aren't going to put your trauma on them if you can pause and look back at each day and say like, all right, where did this not go well and what could I tweak here? Having Sage approved audio for our car rides is a literal lifesaver for my nervous system. And I love making lists of podcasts to share with him when he's ready. I was so excited to hear about a new show called Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, math, geared toward the six plus crowd. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time traveling adventures. Recently, we had some family visiting and on our way to dinner, we popped on an episode of Mysteries About True Histories, math, with my niece and nephew in the car. In this episode, Max and Molly travel back in time to solve a mystery from the order of the problem solvers, along with lots of kid humor mixed in. It was a fun way to enjoy our car ride together and opened the door for some interesting conversation about history and understanding some of the mysteries of the past. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for car rides and meal times, and stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. 
The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online, you can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. Yeah, it's that like intense desire to want to do things like when you see in your own childhood where like, oh, that probably didn't pan out so well for me, like that, that method or, you know, whatever that is. And you see it in your own life and the kind of you know, rabbit hole, it went down for your own like emotional health. And you're like, okay, I don't want to do that to my child. So how can I, you know, change? Like, it's, it's so hard to fight against what all, all, you know, if all, you know, is handling a situation where you say, okay, well, you're crying too much, go upstairs in your room. And when you're done crying, then I'll talk to you. It's like, okay, that definitely did not do so great for me (laughs) like that that definitely kind of affected how I deal with my emotions and you know now it's hard for me to be vulnerable like emotionally even around my husband who like I said I've been with him for so long and he Mm -hmm. is he is an amazing partner and I'm not just like saying that for the sake of like you know saying it he truly is like he is any anytime I send him like read this thing. Mostly it's like, you know, seed and sow stuff. I'm like, read this, read this thing about like emotional health. And he's like, yeah, that's awesome. We're going to have like the best kid. And I'll, I'll send him, you know, news articles about like, oh, can you believe this? This guy like did this, to, like, you know, treated his wife this way, whatever. And he was like, he, he literally will say to me, I cannot wait to raise a man who will never treat another person this way. Like he's just, he's so on board with like just raising a good human. And it's so gratifying and even with all that, it's still so hard for me to be emotionally vulnerable with him at times because it's just like this, you know, when you're raised to kind of, okay, deal with your emotions and then talk to me. It's hard to process those things with someone. So I try really hard to like, you know, if, if my son's name is Judah, so I say like, Judah, I can see you're having a really hard time. Can you try and use words and try and tell mommy what's going on? Can you, you know, like just all those, all those tools in the tool toolbox trying to not rectify like my own problems, but just using my perspective as a way to make my son's emotional health, hopefully a little bit better than mine, basically. <laughs> totally. I think that's so normal. And sometimes what we can see is a pendulum swing of like, it went from here to now we're like talking too much to kids or focusing too much on it. And my yeah. goal is to find that happy medium. Exactly. Um, and it's really hard to do when you're doing what we call reparenting yourself, right? Yes. Like you, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it's so hard. And we're actually working on an episode now. There's one person I really want to get on a podcast. Um, she's very hard to access, but she's my like go-to for reparenting because I think this is a conversation we need to be having about 
reparenting ourselves whilst parenting children. Oh my gosh. It's so true. It's so true. And it's okay if you aren't a perfect human. It's okay if you aren't a hundred percent like every single time I respond with emotional intelligence. Like that's mm-hmm. okay too. Mm-hmm. There are going to be things where you're going to drop the ball and it's not going to be perfect. I I said to Zach the other day, I was like, I wonder what our kids are going to end up in therapy for. Largely, I just want them to know. I I know that we won't be perfect. I know that we will do things and habits in place that they're going to go talk to someone about later. I just want them to know it's okay to go talk to someone about it. Yeah. It's okay to go work through this. It's okay if I make you angry and you want to talk to somebody else about it, right? Like the, that's, I think the key here that I want my kids to have as a takeaway is that it's okay that you aren't perfect. They don't have to be perfect either. If Uh you're striving for perfection and all they see is like perfect parenting, it puts a real high bar up for them to be like a perfect human. And I don't want that. I want them to know it's okay for me to crumble and feel sad or disappointed, et cetera. And it's okay for me to ask for help in the same way that it's okay for you to make mistakes as a parent and to turn around and be like, man, Judah, I'm so sorry. This morning I was really frustrated and I yelled at you or I feel like I told you you couldn't do this thing and actually it's totally fine. Mm-hmm. And, and to walk that back a bit or and in doing so, modeling for them, it's okay to make mistakes. Yeah. And then to come back together. We're not looking for perfection here. We're looking for intention and that's exactly what you're bringing to the table. Also, I can guarantee that you're here consuming this material. You are choosing to spend your spare time, jokes, as a parent, (laughs) consuming this, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's important to you. Mm -hmm. I know without a shadow of doubt in my mind that like you are parenting with intention and that you are working to make sure that like these things that you don't super love from your childhood, you don't repeat. And also I think it's powerful to look and say, what did my parents crush? What did they do awesome at? And how do I make sure I bring those to the table? I think this is what I want every generation to do. I want everyone to say like, all right, what worked really well that we can carry on and what can we tweak going forward? Mm-hmm. Just like there our kiddos will end up down the road saying like, all right, what did my parents do really well that I want to carry on? And what do we tweak moving yeah. forward? And that that's okay. They don't have to grow up and be like, no, my parents were perfect all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I see people that like have these really great relationships with their parents. Like specifically when I was going to therapy a little while ago, the woman I knew, like it was less of a therapy, more of like a mentorship kind of thing. Like I knew her in a more personal way. And I asked her cause her son had recently gotten married. And I was like, how do you maintain like this healthy relation. I, I want more than anything when my son gets married. I want like one day, you know, if he does get married down the line, I want his spouse and I to be like, like on really good terms. Like I just want to love on his spouse when that time comes. Like I want to have this really great relationship. So I asked her like, how do you as a mom of a son, like how do you navigate that relationship? And just talking to her about just being like, 
you just have to meet them where they are. And I feel like that's like that, that truth can be just like implemented in so many different areas. Like even now when my son is almost two, meet him where he's at, like having appropriate like expectations and just like communicating for myself and for him, like what my expectations are, are my expectations out of line? Are they, am I over expecting, under expecting, just kind of like navigating all that. Cause like, I definitely, everything you're saying about making sure that like, I'm aware of what I'm trying to change from my childhood potentially, but not having that like full swing back to the other side. That's so reactionary kind of having, there was some, a friend of mine who has this phrase of like having left and right limits. Like you think A is bad, so you swing all the way over to B. And it's like, well, maybe B is not so great either. Like there has to be kind of like this middle area where you can, you know, change some things without making it like total opposite effect. Yeah, a thousand percent. And we as adults, you will always have more experience than your child or different experiences that then affect how you feel about things, right? Mm -hmm. So, and I think often parents and just adults in general can put this on the tiny humans. For instance, like they're going to school for the first time. You know, they're going to end up being fine. You know that they're going to have fun there. You know that it's going to be okay in the end. So the inclination is to be like, this isn't a big deal because I know it will work out. But right now where they are, this feels like a big deal. Right now with all the information they have up until this point, this is one of the biggest deals in their life so far. Yeah. This is all they know is this world you've created for them. So then when you open up this other door, they're like, whoa, whoa, what? <laughs> like exactly. there's a whole other world out there? Exactly. And so similarly, like down the road, I think when they, if, if they have a partner and like navigate that, I think again, meeting them where they are, I think is huge. And to me, what that means and what that looks like is not putting our lived experience on them. Right. And like, I have an awesome relationship with my in-laws and we're very close. And I, and I think that that's a few things. I think, A, I chose a partner who also has strong family values, who every single summer when we would look at like, oh, we wanted to do a Euro trip for a while, we'd be like, mm, we're not going to because we don't want to spend the only time off we have not with family, mm-hmm. um, right? Like we have, we, we spend most of our time with family mm-hmm. um, and we both share that in common. And I think part of that is we were both raised that way. We are both raised with like, family first and that it's a non-negotiable, like we will all show up for each other. And so I think A, there's that. And then B, um, they never came in and were like, oh, you should be doing X, Y, and Z or be mindful of this or that in partnership. In fact, anytime that people have like shown up and like, oh, well, as you're buying your first house or as you're whatever, if they put their lived experience on me, I immediately pull back and I'm like, well, they're... It's, it's so frustrating. I'm like, they're not the person that I will share any more of this with because I don't want to hear their lived experience. This is what we're choosing to do, right? Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. you can get on board or not, but you'll just either become the person I share this with or not. Um, and then other times I'm looking for advice and feedback and thoughts, and we'll let you know when we're looking for that. Uh, but I think that that, as you were just chatting about like down the road with this partner, I think that that's a huge part of it is not putting at any point our lived experience on them and instead showing up with like, oh, I can tell that they're really excited about this or um, 
I can see that you're really nervous about this and connecting with them over that feeling rather than uh, what your experience has told you about that. It, the same thing with the anxiety or the fear that like, if you have fear or anxiety around something, it's your job to regulate those emotions so that your child can have their own feelings about it. Mm-hmm. I so strongly like that is one of my biggest fears. And I know that having that fear kind of creates an issue, but (laughs) like, I just don't want my son to be anxious in the ways that I've been anxious in my life. Like when I see, I've just always been from birth an anxious person. I think my, my like personality just kind of bends towards that. And then on top of all my other experiences, it just really kind of pulled me in that direction. But my mom said when I was a baby, when we used to go over like railroad tracks in my car seat, because I couldn't see the road, I'd start screaming. I was so upset because I was like scared of going over the railroad tracks. Like that's just always kind of been my like proclivity. And then I see my son like climbing up the thing, no fear, just going for it. I'm like, I'm cheering him on. I am like so happy. That's what I want for him. Like I'm always like sad that I'm the one like at the theme park holding everyone's bags because I don't go on the rides. Like I'm like, I'm that person. And I like don't, I mean, if that's who he is, that's who he is. But like, I would prefer him to not, I want him to do what he wants if that brings him joy. Like if it brings him joy to be that person that's like going on the rides and doing all this crazy stuff, like I want him to be that person. Totally. You don't want fear to hold him back. Exactly. Because <laughs> that that is what it's, it's, it's done in, in my life for sure. So I just, I want him to know that like, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to have fear. But like, how do we not let that fear hold us back? Because that's something I'm still dealing with. So I think that's, that's part of it. I was just, that is the key question. So everybody has one emotion that's the hardest to process. For some people, it's fear. Some people, it's sadness. Um, some people, it's anger, disappointment, shame, guilt. Everyone has one that's the hardest to process. And when we're talking about anxiety, it's what I really want to do is break down that word to fear because it's really just getting stuck in fear and that fear is hard for you to process. And when you can break it down to that, then you can say like, okay, when I'm feeling afraid, what can I do to help my body feel calm so that I can get to my prefrontal cortex, my rational brain. When you're feeling anxious, you're stuck in fear and you're in your amygdala and your whole, what we'll often do is go into rationalizations. We'll like make to-do lists or to feel organized, or we will distract ourselves so that we don't feel it anymore. Or we'll wow. Do something. You're just like attacking me so hard right now. <laughs> Girl, I've lived it. <laughs> I hear you sister. I lived it for so long and there were coping mechanisms that I didn't even realize were coping mechanisms, right? Like for me, one of the things was that like when the the night that I was raped, nobody knew where I was because I had snuck out of the house. And um, I, so then like for the rest of my life, I was like, well, everybody, somebody will always know where I am at all mm-hmm. times. Like I'd be leaving a college class and I'd just like call somebody or text somebody, which for me, I was just like, oh, I just like to talk to people between class. I would leave work and just text Zach, like, on my way home, I left work almost the same time every day. Like, he probably knew I would be on my way home every day. But I, for me, it had become a coping mechanism to make sure that somebody knew where I was just in case I didn't show up where I was supposed to be. And I I relate to that very, very strongly, very strongly. 
And I didn't even realize it was a coping mechanism until I started doing this work and started to like tap into like, okay, in what ways am I making sure that my body doesn't feel the fear in the first place? Um, Distracting myself out of it. What am I doing around that, right? To, To make it so that I'm just not feeling it. Or how am I trying to, when I'm in it, just rationalize with myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was a huge one for me. I couldn't go into basements for a long time without going into like almost panic attack and just full amygdala. Um, and for me, what I would do was try to rationalize like, okay, if somebody's down here, here's my exit plan. This is what this would look like, etc. And in actuality had to do much different work than that because what I was doing was trying to like rationalize my way out of my amygdala and you can't do that. Yeah, absolutely. Can't do that. And so when we're looking at anxiety or fear in, in adults and ourselves, part of it is really outlining what are we doing now? What are you tapping into when you're feeling fear now and figuring out what those coping mechanisms are and then looking at, okay, what coping strategies am I going to create both proactively and reactively. So like in the moment, what are we doing? But also proactively, what am I doing to help regulate my hormone levels? What am I doing to help regulate my cortisol? So am I getting enough exercise? Am I getting enough sleep? Am I pausing to breathe? Am I like all these things that go into Mm -hmm. um, our proactive measures here for this? And then in the moment, what am I doing? When I know I'm going to walk in, I knew I was going to leave work every day, right? So I had to create a new plan for myself of like, all right, I know I'm going to leave work. I know that if I don't text Zach or call him, I'm going to start to feel nervous um, at some point in the drive home. So what's that going to look like for me? What am I going to tap into uh, mm-hmm. here to support myself? And then doing that work for myself totally changed how I then interact with kids. Otherwise, yeah, there is a strong chance we will transfer some of that fear and anxiety on to them because even if they don't have it around the same things, even if they're not afraid of taking the physical risk or the physical challenge, fear might still be be hard for them to process in other areas. And Mm -hmm. we can't teach what we don't know, right? So like they're going to watch us navigate this and learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's for sure. Like even my original question, when I wrote in, like kind of dealing with like the times when you don't maybe respond the best way, or maybe for a period of time, I didn't respond well for like the crying and all that. So like now I'm much better. Now we do way better, but like, I still feel like there's some habits that were formed because of my personal issues that. So as I'm working on myself, how do I, like in my mind, the question is how do I now deal with the habits that he's formed. Like for example, when I would put him to sleep, I would get, he would be like crying because he's tired, you know, we're trying to like, you know, navigate that. And he just sometimes, you know, is fighting sleep or whatever it was. And I would get so angry and so frustrated because I always put him to bed. My husband works the evening shift. So he is not usually home for bedtime unless he's off. So I do bedtime, you know, 95% of the time. So it's every single day, every single night, putting him to bed by myself. And it gets like a lot, you know, especially when you're home all day. So I would get really angry, really frustrated. And I would just have to put him down and walk away because I was angry which I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily to be like, I need a minute, I'm going to walk away. 
But the problem was I was in such a heightened anxiety and emotional state that it kind of came out as like a punishment. Like you're being too much. I'm angry. I have to walk away, which then I know caused him more emotional, like not distress, but like a little bit of fear, probably like, wait, where are you going? I'm sorry. Like, I, you know, and I definitely created that. So now he is sleeping. We share one bedroom because we only have one bedroom. So his, his bed is in um, our room next to our bed and he does fall asleep in his own bed, but I cannot just put him down in his bed and say like, okay, like time to go to sleep. Night, night. I love you and walk out the door. Even though he does fall asleep on his own, I have to sit there because if I walk out of the room, it's immediate crying. It's, it's zero to a hundred. Like he doesn't. And I know it's because of those times when I walked away and made him afraid. So slowly I've been trying to like, okay, like I'll just be like, okay, I have to just go get your water bottle and I will leave for three seconds and then come right back to show him that like, it's all good. My mommy's coming back. And I'm trying to like slowly rebuild that trust in that specific scenario, because I know he trusts me. I know he knows that mommy's here, but I just know in that scenario, I, I messed up. Like I definitely made some like bad choices in the moment, you know? So like I'll totally. try to walk back some of those kinds, kinds of habits, you know? Yeah. We're going to form, we form habits every day, all the time, right? Like how we respond to things. And just because a habit is formed doesn't mean we don't get to recreate that. Right. Mm-hmm. Otherwise we'd be like, Welp, there's no need for therapy or anything because once a habit's formed, good luck. That's mm-hmm. your habit, right? Like we can we can rewrite these patterns. It's really that's what a habit is. It's a pattern in your brain of like this happens and this happens. Um we get to rewrite them. And right now he's so young that it's actually way faster and easier to rewrite them than when you're like 25 in therapy saying, I'm going to rewrite them. (laughs) It's so funny you say that because I have this pervasive feeling of like, I messed up. I didn't do things right from day one. And I see parents who probably did make better choices kind of from the get-go and they're having a much easier time of it. And I'm like, man, he's almost two. Like, why even bother? Just like, let it be the way it is. It's going to be like this forever. And it's funny you say that because like, I guess I kind of know that when you say it, but when I think about it by myself, I'm like, what's the point in even trying? He's too old. It'll be too difficult. He's too vocal. Like it would have been so much easier when he didn't talk to deal with these things. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. There are definitely points where it's like easier. And if we approach habits as like once one's in place, that's it, man. Where this is going to be a wild ride. Uh, <laughs> no, I think like instead being able to look and say like, okay, recognize this is the habit that has formed. And now we're going to work on rewriting that pattern with anything. And I wouldn't do a whole bunch of them at a time, just in the same way that like, you know, when January 1st comes and we're like, I'm going to eat differently and I'm going to work out every day and I'm going to get a billion hours of sleep and drink all this water, whatever. And you do it for like a week and you're like, whoa, that was so much change in a week. I don't know how to move forward. Mm-hmm. And so you just stop. Anytime we're rewriting patterns for kiddos, for the most part, I want to look at like one at a time. So if we're looking at this like sleep habit, I would, there are a couple options here. You can either do like, okay, you're going to put him down and then you're going to go and do something longer than three seconds. I'm going to go do the dishes and then I'm going to come back. I'm going to go X and then I'm going to come back. When I was living with that family for the week, the little dude uh, struggles with fear a lot and their bathroom, their house is under construction. So the um, bathroom for him was on the second floor. So we'd be playing in the living room. And if he had to go to the bathroom, he had to go up a flight of stairs by himself. And 
he was he would rather like pee his pants than go upstairs by himself. And so part of the things we were working on this week was like me slowly moving away from that saying like, all right, I'm going to come up with you. And then I'd be like, all right, bud, I'm going to go down and get snack ready and I'll be back in a minute or whatever, like yeah. slowly pulling away. And then we got to the point where I would say like, okay, I'm going to sit on the stairs while he goes up. And he would call down and say like, are you there? Yep. I'm still right here. And then we slowly, just in a week's time pulled away from like, okay, but I'll be in the living room. You can go up and go to the bathroom. If you're feeling nervous when you're going up, what can you do? And he um, knew like the choices of what could help him feel calm when he was going up. And for every kid, that's going to look a little different, figuring out what their coping strategies are. But in general, it's like slowly pulling this away, pulling you right now, you're a coping mechanism for him. And you're going to slowly pull away the mechanism and bring in strategies. So like, while I'm doing the dishes, if you feel lonely up here, what could you do? You could snuggle a lovey. You could draw a picture on a clipboard. You could uh, sing a song, right? Like figuring out like, what is that going to look like for him as he's falling asleep? And then the other option is to physically just pull you away slowly where like you're sitting in the room next to him as he falls asleep. And then you're sitting maybe closer, like a little farther away. And then you're sitting by the door and then you're sitting outside the door. Like those are really the two options there, but same idea that we're not pulling a coping mechanism without building a coping strategy, cold turkey. Right. I think that's the big difference because I know like, especially with how it ties into my anxiety, it's like, there's a lot of intermingled anxiety with guilt. So Mm -hmm. like I'm, I, I know that my anxiety has caused some problems, then, so then I feel guilty about it. So then if I try to fix it and replace me with something else, I feel guilty. Like I'm doing something like mean, like I'm being mean of being like, I don't want to deal with you. Like you figure it out. Like, even though I know that like logically, that's not what I'm yeah. doing. And I don't want him to be dependent on me for everything because I'm not always going to physically be there for him. So it's really doing, I know that it's doing him a disservice to not give him another coping strategy, it's just hard, especially because I am, I do stay home with him. So it's easy to be like, well, like, does he really need something else? Like I'm, I'm here. Like I'm always totally here. Right. <laughs> so. And you are always there now. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and there are some times for sure where I'm like, no, just go give that kid a hug. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, it's not like a, oh, I can never be their person. It's them knowing they have things outside of you that you yeah. are a choice. And these other strategies are choices. Yeah. Does that make sense? It Um, totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, they can never turn to you for support. That's not at all what what I want them to feel. What I want them to know is that if you aren't there, there are other ways that they can find their calm, that they aren't like almost like crippled without you there, like dependent upon you. Yeah. To feel their calm. That's so hard for me, even though everything you're saying, I totally agree with, and I know it's true. And then like my, my psychology background, what I understand of like attachment and all that mm-hmm. stuff, like it totally tracks, but for some reason, there's just like a, like an emotional or like a mental block for me that I just feel immense guilt. Like if I were to have him be like, I never really did a lovey. I kind of tried a little, but he never, like, I didn't really try. So I didn't, you know, push it. Um, there's a part of me that like, if I really tried to push him on to having like a little stuffy or whatever, that I'd feel bad about it. And I don't really know why. And that's something I need to like negotiate for myself and figure out for sure. I know it's tied into my own anxiety, but it's like, it's hard to navigate that feeling of like, 
I should be the best mom. I should be there always and forever at every moment and meet every single need. Like that's kind of the thought that I think, at least for me, that I felt. So to like be like, well, maybe you don't need to be like everything. Like maybe, maybe he can have like his little Mickey doll that he loves to carry around. Like maybe that can be something that he loves too. And I, I say it and I know it makes sense, but when I think about actually implementing it, I just feel this like immense guilt and anxiety over it. I don't know why. And that's something I, I need to figure out. I think you just said something really, really, really important in there that in your mind right now, what ma- what would make you a good mom is the ability to be there to support him through all the things. And so I think it's got to start there of deciding what does it look like for you? If you were to say like, I'm such a good mom, what would that really look like for you? And is it is it the goal that you are there for him through all the things. Is that what being a really good mom looks like? What does that look like for him in partnership down the road? What does it look like for him at work when he has a hard day? What does that look like for him when he goes off to college or whatever? Like, what does that look like for him down the road? Not just now, but down the road, what would being a good mom look like for him? And what tools do you want him to have? Where you could be like, man, I crushed parenthood. (laughs) He's got these tools and I nailed it. What does that look like? Because I think often what we think is that, I I like the phrase, start as we wish to go on. That like, they won't just develop these tools. I I work with teachers, middle and high school and and elementary school as well. But this is one of the things that I'm seeing is that teachers will be like, well, they should have this tool. And it's going lower and lower where it's like, high school teachers think they should have this. Middle school teachers think they should have this. Oh no, elementary teachers should have told them this. And elementary teachers are like, they should have learned this in kindergarten. They should have learned this in preschool. (laughs) It's going low. Mm -hmm. And what we're realizing is like, nobody taught them this, right? And so at some point, they don't just develop it. And when we're looking at emotional intelligence, especially when we're looking at coping strategies, they don't just develop, they have to be taught. Our, Our natural inclination as animals is to turn to a mechanism to make your body just stop feeling the hard thing. And because we are evolved animals with prefrontal cortex, we know that now that like, that's not how this has to go. (laughs) And we have the power to turn to strategies to process so that we leave our amygdala and go to our prefrontal cortex and process emotions. And those strategies have to be taught. And so when we're looking at like, what would it really look like for you to be a quote unquote good mom? What does that look like down the road? Because building that skill set starts now. Yeah. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. 
Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. And it's, and I'm even thinking about like bringing full circle. We were talking earlier about like kind of difference between like attachment, attachment, parenting, all those ideas that are like just shared all over the place. And maybe, maybe it's just me, (laughs) but I, I feel like maybe someone else has felt this way that there's this, this kind of idea that like, Oh, if they're supposed to do it, they'll do it all by themselves magically. And that if you have to teach it, that it's, I feel I'm butchering my own sentence, but basically there's this idea that if it's not natural, it's bad. And that if that children are just born absolutely perfect, they're born with everything they need, everything is ready, and you just have to guide them along the path and not screw it up. And I think that idea has really messed with me dealing with a lot of these things for myself and for him that like, no, he doesn't just naturally know how to do these things. I have to teach him how to be, you know, how to regulate, how to regulate on his own, like all those things that like, I think it's kind of just like this almost like, it's almost like subtle mom shaming. Like, oh, my kid just did it. I didn't have to teach him. My kid never hit my my child never struck another child. I'm like, oh, I'm over here like, well, my kid hits me. So what do we like? What does this mean? Like, it's, it's just kind of like that mindset of like, they'll just know. And I think that's really damaging. And I know it's damaging to me as a mom for sure. And I think it can be really damaging that like your child just doesn't do it. Oh, well, I guess you've just screwed it up because they were perfect when they came out and now they're not. So I guess you've done something wrong. (laughs) I I think, I think everything you're saying, like needing to teach them these tools that like, I think it's really important for parents and myself to really like recognize it. It's okay to like imprint on your child. I mean, not, you know, trying to make them what you want, but just imprinting lessons and like showing them, you know, the path of life and how to like kind of negotiate all these things and that it doesn't just happen on its own, you know? Absolutely. And we live in a society where like there are, people are going to respond to them. People are, we're always imprinting something based on like how we react or respond. If a baby cries and every time there's a peep, we pick them up, we are communicating to them that like, it's not okay to cry or break down here, that we will just make that expression stop. So like we're always communicating with them and imprinting something. It's not that anything just like 
happens and they just end up a certain way. Like that, it's all because of how we've responded, what they've been exposed to, what their experiences have been, et cetera. And part of this is like temperament. Everyone comes out with different sensory systems. We all have different temperaments, how we interact and process, uh, interact with and process stimuli is different for everybody. And so those will play a role too here, but also like, man, people are going to respond to kiddos depending on how that kiddo shows up in the world or humans in general. If somebody comes up to me as like, um, I need X, Y, and Z. I'm going to receive that differently than they're like, Hey, excuse me, can I please have X, Y, and Z? Mm -hmm. And so there are social implications here that are Mm -hmm. going to affect partnerships, job, et cetera, how they live their life, Mm -hmm. how people respond to them and how they interact with other people. And we, I think it's our job to decide like, what are our values around this and to support them and teach them how to show up in the world in a way that, that I guess will be like most beneficial for them. And doesn't mean they won't feel hard things, but that they will have a toolbox to navigate whatever comes up. Yeah. And part of that toolbox might might be that they know how to say like, please, right? That they can yeah. like ask a question and say, please, rather than yelling at somebody and demanding something. To me, that's a part of like empathy and social awareness. There are four components to emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-reg, empathy, and social awareness. And yeah, I think like the idea that things just develop, no way, dude. That's why we get sleep consults for kids who are three, four, and five years old because people are like, oh no, we were just waiting it out, waiting for them to do this naturally. And now here we are. Can you help us now? We can't wait any longer. Well, hello, it me. I mean, that's literally, that's literally my life is like, he should, he should just, because I hear of, of moms, you know, saying like, you know, my kid like nursed all night till they were like two. And then one day they just stopped one day. They just went to sleep. And like, I'm going to trust that that really did happen. But like, I just, I, that's what I want because I, and somebody told me this once, like when you deal with anxiety, it's easier to not do something than to do something. Even if not doing something is actually more damaging, it is, it feels safer to not do something. Oh, I'm not going to, you know, implement a new kind of routine or whatever, because what if it gets worse? What if this happens X, Y, Z versus like, if I actually try something that sounds really scary to try something new, but it could be really great, but you don't think that far ahead when you're dealing with the anxiety. You're just like, I don't want to do something different, even though it's terrible. Even though my two-year-old wakes every three to four hours, like, it's just scary to like start that new process and they should just do it on their own. They should just, it's just natural. (laughs) Like that I'm still definitely kind of navigating, like knowing that, okay, like it's, it's, I shouldn't feel guilty over a wanting to sleep and like be like needing to implement something. Like I didn't do something wrong. Like nothing's, nothing's wrong with him for not sleeping, you know, as well as I would like necessarily. It's just that like, he needs a little bit more support in this area than maybe another child does. Just like my child doesn't really need support in verbal communication. He's extremely verbal. He, he vocalizes what he needs very well. 
other children need more support and there's there's nothing wrong with them or that that's just an area that they need help in so I think that's part of my anxiety as well is like that that fear like you're saying that honing in on that fear that fear of of doing something that leads to inaction of not acting because I'm afraid of what might possibly potentially maybe happen (laughs) Totally. It's the fear of the unknown. And this is so common. This is why it's really hard to create new habits and routines, because even if the habits and routines we have aren't really working for us, they're at least comfortable. We know what to expect. We know what the results will be. It's not unknown. And that's that's also just like part of being a human. I think most people we settle into some sort of comfort. And again, even if it's not working for us, we're mm-hmm. like, ooh, but this I, this is the known. I know how to do this. I have these habits in place. And doing something new is hard. Not only is there unknown of how it's going to go, but there's also that like you have to bring intention to the table because you don't just like fall into that old pattern. You know, when you'll like drive somewhere and all of a sudden you're like, ooh, I don't even remember driving there. I just, it's so second nature at this point. Mm-hmm. And so many things in life are like that. And if you were going to take a different route on that drive, you would have to bring intention to the table. You'd have to be like, okay, I know we have to stop at the store here. Like, how can I draw out a route that's outside of my norm? And you'd you'd have to be actively uh, working on it. And it's way easier to just fall into what's comfortable. Anytime we're doing this work, the hardest part is creating these new habits because there's so much fear of like, what is this going to look like? Especially when we're talking about like letting kids cry um, to bring this full circle and and kind of wrap it up that when we're going to let kids cry, there's fear of where will this tantrum go? Kind of like, what is this going to look like? What are the repercussions going to be? How am I going to survive this as it gets bigger and more intense? Am I going to end up yelling because it's going to get bigger and more intense? Are they going to respond to the coping strategies? There's so much fear and unknown that it's almost easier to just like fall into old habits. And also recognizing that as long as we fall into old habits, unless we change something, change won't happen. Right. Yeah. So um, that's a I think it's the hardest part here. But accepting that this is going to be a little rocky and it won't be perfect, and that's okay. And that the that's the village is here for, right? So that you're not alone. So that you can say like, all right, guys, we're going to implement this change, and I'm nervous about it. Has anyone done it before? How did that go for you? What should I expect? what might come up uh, before you even dive in. So with our sleep consultations and in our sleep course, uh, with Awake Keto Snoozy Parents online sleep course, we, as a part of it, when you fill out your sleep plan, before you even do any sleep changes, you get all this information, you figure out the route, you create a plan. And part of that plan is who is going to support you, the adult, through this? Who's going to be the person that you reach out to the day of when you're feeling nervous about this new plan that you're going to put in? Who's the person that like you can step out and text or call or turn to and say, like, God, this is hard? Or who is the person that once that kid's asleep, you can reach out to and say, oh man, night number one was really hard or wow, that went easier than I thought. And now I'm nervous about night number two, or Mm -hmm. what do I do with those wake-ups? Can you help remind me? Whatever. Like anytime we're doing something new, we have got to have a support system to do it. Otherwise you're going to second guess yourself the whole time and be like, oh man, no, I just shouldn't do this. Like I'm going to create irreparable damage. 
me, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just you, sis, it's everybody. <laughs> oh man. That, I mean, I am so thankful. Like I don't have, um, like a large friend group physically, you know, like I just don't, mm-hmm. I'm not super social naturally, you know? So I think it's just some, like kind of, you know, I think a lot of moms feel that way. It's just hard to like you know, navigate that whole area of motherhood, but I'm super thankful for the online community. Like I've made like actual real friends, like that I text through mom groups online that like, I've never met them in person, but like, I know the most intimate details about their life because there's just like that. I mean, it's a little bit of, um, anonymity, you know, behind the screen, you can be a little bit more like open with how you feel, but it's just that sense that like, we are all in this together you know, maybe you do things differently, but like, I want to hear your perspective because maybe, maybe I don't subscribe to all that, but maybe there's like a piece of that that could be really helpful to me or, you know, trying to implement these, like I've, I've posted so many questions in my, in the, you know, groups just being like, my kid is doing this as anyone else's child does this. And I get like immediately like 20 people being like, yes, my kid did that. It's totally normal. Like just having that sense of like, okay. So I think definitely everything you're saying, as far as like finding that that person or those people that you can, you can turn to and just be like, you know, he, I was trying to, you know, not get him to nurse at 2am. So I, I gave him like a piece of cheese. Did I just like really screw something up? Cause I was just trying to do this. And it's like, you know, just kind of like, give me a better idea. <laughs> like I, I panicked in the moment and like, you need people to have that that aren't in it, that can be a little more, like have some more clarity to be like, okay, maybe like a piece of cheese in the middle of the night. It's not the best plan, but like, what if you gave him a water bottle or something instead, you know, those, those kinds of things. So I'm like super thankful for that. And it's definitely helped me like be a little bit more brave, the opposite of being fearful and anxious, being a little bit more brave and being like, okay, I'm allowed, I don't need to ask permission to make a change. I can just do it. And if it doesn't work, that's fine. You go back and maybe you figure out something else, but like, it's okay to make a change. I think that's something that I'm realizing and I really need to own specifically in the area of like the sleep stuff with him, but even in other areas as well, just like how I respond. I don't have to like do things a certain way. I can, I, I have permission from myself to, to like make a change and kind of try to make things better if, if I can. Yeah, a thousand percent. And I think one thing that's important to keep in mind as you are finding your village, creating it, the reason that I created our Facebook group is that I was in all these other parent groups online and I would see, I love the like, yes, I've been there, the solidarity piece. But then I would see input that I was like, well, that's not emotionally supportive, et cetera, whatever. And so we created our group so that you can have both the solidarity from people who have walked this journey, who are in it with you. And it's so deliciously supportive. I love that about it. And also, if people comment with feedback of like, you could try X, Y, and Z, and we feel like it's not emotionally supportive or um, not awesome for the long term, just a short term fix, that's when our team will pop in and be like, totally understand where you're coming from here. These are like awesome things to pull out. Here are some things to consider. Because um, yeah. I think that that's a part that I have found missing in it. it when we just have parents supporting parents without the experts in the field piece of this, um, that we can end up kind of like 
I guess just going based off of what worked for somebody else's kid, which um, doesn't always apply. <laughs> yeah, and might sure. not might not be what you want in the long term. It may have yeah. been a short term fix. So just as people are navigating this, to keep that in mind, and our group is free and open to anybody, mm-hmm. um, and we will and have, like, I've had people leave the group because they would give feedback. And then I'd be like, Hey sis, like, thanks for supporting them. And if I fine tuned or uh, we will not, I think we try to do it in a very empathetic, like can place of connection. Um, but we will, um, come in and support with information that we feel needs to be said. And in doing that, like, my expectation is that the adults that are receiving that feedback, uh, it's your responsibility to notice how you feel. Like, did you feel defensive? Did you feel guilty about your response? Did you feel, what, what did that look like for you? And to monitor that, and we're always open to that discussion. But we have had some people who have just like left the group, I think because it's sometimes if you're going to hear feedback, it's going to make you uncomfortable. It can be easier to just walk away from it. Yeah. I 1000, 1000% agree. And I'm in that group and I've noticed, I've read through all like, you know, the different posts about so many different topics and I'll see you like pop in and chime in and be like, Hey, like, this is really cool. Like maybe you could try this or whatever. And I think that's, I so, so, so agree that that is what's missing in so many groups is that, and I have also left groups because I just see consistently like people suggesting things that are like, I mean, downright just like unsafe, you know, forget about like emotional health. Like you're, you're just suggesting something that like someone is going to become seriously injured, you know, and I can't, I can't deal. This is, I can't deal with the emotional weight of knowing that you're doing something so awful because I have this, I'm an Enneagram two wing three. I need to fix it. (laughs) I need to fix it. It is my responsibility to make everyone happy. (laughs) So, and so I've had to like walk away and be like, I can't, I have to choose to walk away because I can't, it's too much for me. Like it's too much. Mm -hmm. So I, I so appreciate like that group, the seed and so group, um, is just like, it's exactly what you're saying. It's marrying that, like that village mindset that like, Hey, is anyone else dealt with that, that validation, but also being like, knowing that I'm going to get accurate information that's going to be, like you're saying, in the long term, helpful. So like if I see in another group, someone's posting something like, oh, my kid is biting me. Like, how do I deal with this? And they say, bite them back. <laughs> I'm like, okay, no, no, no. But then I see a similar question answered or asked in your group. And it's like, here are some strategies. Like what's happening? You know, it's not even a strategy to deal with it. It's a question of, well, what's happening right before that moment? Like what's causing it? Like it's, let's get to the root. And I think that's the biggest issue is and everything you're saying, I think can be wrapped up in that reactionary versus responding mindset of like, instead of just reacting to what the problem is, like, let's respond, let's figure out what's happening. Let's like solve the issue. And I really, I really, really think everything you said is so true. And it's the foundation of like, I'm probably every parenting question, essentially, you know, but even with the anxiety, just responding and not reacting. Yeah. And it's so much easier said than done. And it takes a lot of practice and a lot of work to first build the self-awareness when it's starting to build, not when you're at a place where you're at like an eight out of 10, but what does it feel like at like a three? What does that look like? And how do you then 
step in and uh, kind of as you were saying earlier, where like you get to a place you're so frustrated, you put your kid down and walk away. That's an awesome tool. I just want to use it before you're so frustrated. I want to use it when you're at a three and say, you know what, I'm going to take some space and be right back, even if it means that they're crying while you walk away. And then you can come back and respond rather than, all right, I'm at an eight and now I'm angry at you and putting you down. And now we're at a whole different place. So Uh, The first part of this is really just paying attention to your own, like noticing your feelings, your reactions, uh, and starting to get to a place where you can notice them earlier and earlier so that you can build in strategies for yourself so that you can respond instead of react uh, and come from uh, what we would call your rational brain or your prefrontal cortex. Um, Nicole, thank you so much. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for joining me today and opening up and getting vulnerable and real and for just being a part of our village and raising an emotionally intelligent dude. It's so dang important. Thank you so much for everything you provide. I mean, truly, like it's such a it's such an excellent resource and I'm I'm happy to take advantage of it. <laughs> thank you. That's so sweet. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village. Check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at voicesofyourvillage.com. Did you know that we have a special community for all of you to be a part of so that we can all gather together to raise emotionally intelligent humans? Head on over to Facebook, search Seed and Sow colon Voices of Your Village and dive into that Facebook group. We cannot wait to hang out with you and collaborate on raising these tiny humans. If you're digging this podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts, scroll down, click those stars and leave a review. It really fills my heart to hear from all of you. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder, and I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.